Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 4th, 2019, and my guest is author and social entrepreneur, Mauricio Miller. His book, which is the subject of today's conversation, is The Alternative. Most of what you believe about poverty is wrong. Mauricio, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much, Russ. I really appreciate being here. What's wrong with what we believe about poverty? What are some of the mistakes we make when we think about it? I think one of the biggest things is just how we as people relate to one another, which is too often when it is a people or a population we don't know, we will uh, defer default to a stereotype. And some people's stereotypes of other people are good, bad, or whatever. But that what's interesting about humanity is that none of us actually fit the stereotype. Um, and it's difficult to be treated like the stereotype. So um, one of the big stereotypes around people that are poor is basically that they're probably there because it's their fault uh, and that, you know, the most uh, helpful will try to then come in and provide advice. And the ones that uh, are not wanting to be helpful will basically try to ignore that population or get rid of it. So the stereotypes, I think, tend to really play a big role in terms of what uh, and how we then come up with solutions, which isn't very helpful. One of the things we'll come back to, I'm sure, that you, you write about in your book, but one of the things I think about a great deal, especially recently, is I think about uh, how to help the poor, is the role of agency, the role of personal ability. And I think, you know, so, as you say, one of the stereotypes is that it's their fault. The poor, are, I think a lot of people think the poor are lazy. As somebody said to me recently, well, there's so many jobs in America. There's so much opportunity. Um, and they don't think about the complications of trying to find a job, given your life circumstances, the way you were raised, the education you didn't get, and so on. And at the other end are people who say, well, they really can't help themselves uh, because they have no chance. They're oppressed. They're victims. The system gives them no scope for agency. So we have to lift them out ourselves from the situation that they're in because they, they have no way of helping themselves. And you are very, um, you attack both of those views. Yes. Um, I think for me, because, uh, yeah, I was raised by a single mom, Mexican, immigrated uh, to the United States when I was about eight years old. And just watching what things were like in Mexico and then when we came up here uh, and realizing that the people that I lived with in these neighborhoods, and we lived in some fairly tough neighborhoods. I think I had like 18 addresses by the time I was 21, that um, everybody, almost everybody worked really, really hard and they were really resourceful and really talented and that there were circumstances certainly that uh, kept them from maybe becoming as independent as uh, they all wanted to, and that somehow or other they were not really looked at in terms of how resourceful they were. And what I remember is that it takes a huge amount of resourcefulness, 
self-reliance, determination, uh, hard work and talent to really be able to survive in this country or any country when you don't have very much money. And that is just not something that's accepted. It's the amount of talent required to make it through the month and watching my mother try to pay the bills at the end of the month and figuring out how and what we could eat for the next month. Uh, that is something that a lot of people in privileged situations don't realize how difficult that is. And you also make the point that another stereotype we have is that people are either permanently poor uh, or permanently rich. And in fact, there's quite a bit of mobility in and out of poverty, uh, not to understate the challenges, but it's not a permanent class for, for a large group of people who might be poor in any one year. I think that's one of the most fascinating things because uh, when I ran social service uh, programs and I was I ran programs for about 20 years that in order to get funding, I would promote the issue that we had these people that were in these neighborhoods that we had to go save because they were stuck there. And what was really curious to me is that since I grew up in a lot of the neighborhoods, and I realized that people were like stuck, that actually people had done a lot. Uh, it was very strange to me to, on the one hand, be making arguments in order to get funding that people were stuck and the realization that, well, in all the neighborhoods I lived in, people weren't that stuck. They would hit ceilings once they actually were working poor, but they obviously were not just stuck generationally, which is how I sold my programs. Um, what happened later as I was running uh, a lot of the Family Independence Initiative, which was the initiative I started later to find out what was going on in these neighborhoods, um, is that I ran into census studies going all the way back to 2004. And in the census studies, it consistently showed that we don't have generational poverty that is stuck under the poverty level, that only about 3% of the population is stuck under poverty level for even three or four years and that the average stay under poverty is two to four months or something like that. I'm losing track of, but it was very small uh, amount of time. And that what happens is that exactly what uh, the studies showed, exactly what I experienced, which is people actually go out immediately after they lost a job and go try to find another job. It may take them a couple months and then they again climb out of the out of poverty. But what is not noted is how unstable it is to be working poor in the in, in America, in the United States, that you're paid at, at a wage that will not allow you to take care of your car when it breaks down or your child when they get sick. And so when that happens or if for my mother, it's like her bosses would come on to her and so she'd have to quit. She just couldn't take that the, the harassment that would happen. And so in those periods, then you go back under poverty. So the curious piece, and, and I was presenting to some trustees of foundation, is said, well, if, if the census says it's only about 3%, not 15%, how come it's always 15% or something like that uh, that are in poverty? And I said, well, it is anybody who has lost their job in the period when the census does its studies. And some of those are middle-class people that basically lost a job because a plant closed in their town or that actually are in a transition to another job. And some of them are working poor and some are are poor that have disabilities. And so that 15% is an ever-changing group of families. It is not one block of families that then doesn't know what to do. Obviously, if it's only 3%, 
people are doing something. And what our society has not learned either on the left or the right is to recognize what it is people actually do for themselves and with each other. Your books are rather, it's an extraordinary personal story alongside some of the policy lessons that you expound on. Uh, You know, the personal stories you mentioned earlier, you're raised by a single mom who immigrates from Mexico. You end up at UC Berkeley with an engineering degree and then go out and uh, change the world in a different way. Do you ever worry that your personal success in overcoming those barriers, and they're quite high, and you describe them in, in really poignant and powerful ways in the book, but that that's made you overconfident about the ability of others to, to rise and, and to, to, to put themselves on their own feet? You know, I don't know that that's a worry that I have. Um, for me, the reason I probably don't even go there is knowing my mother and my sister and some of the close friends that we had that were really poor, that I'd say the majority of them were smarter than me, worked harder than me, were more determined than me. Uh, but that circumstance and certainly a lo- lot of love and care from my family, um, that circumstance, however, put me in this situation where, quote, then I'm considered successful. And so for me, it's almost the opposite that, you know, given the fact that I, I'm not as smart as a lot of even my nephew or whatever, um, and that I'm not as determined as they were in trying to even get one kid like me to go to college, um, that somehow or other, if there's, there's so many people that are smarter and harder working than me, then obviously there is something else that's wrong. It's not the people themselves. Uh, and it's certainly not that I'm the exception. I'm the exception because of circumstance, not because I work harder or anything else. So yeah, I actually come to the different conclusion than, you know, I'm the exceptionally uh, privileged and therefore I'm smarter and I work harder than anybody. That just has not been my experience. But do you think others can can rise and be successful and overcome their uh handicaps of, of circumstance? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when when I came to the United States, uh, it was a period where, you know, everybody was saying that uh, the United States was where you could really make it if you worked really hard. And what I was very conscious of is that there had been a Jewish community that came in, uh, you know, under heavy stress, uh, that heavy discrimination. There had been the Irish, the Polish that had come in after the the Irish, after the potato famines, they were discriminated against. The African-Americans after slavery produced entire townships. 50 towns were built in Oklahoma during reconstruction. And this is when they were totally isolated from the major economy. Uh, So these were the examples that I had in terms of coming into this country and saying, well, then, you know, we might be able to do some of whatever was done, again, if we work really hard. So to me, that capacity, that capability really existed. Uh, and so then you start to wonder, well, then how come we're not getting as much of that success that had happened in all these various, various communities? One of the phrases you use, one of the memorable phrases you use is that in America, we make poverty tolerable. What do you mean by that? And, and what's wrong with that? There isn't anything wrong with it, but it is not going to lead and it's not going to be a springboard to actually upward mobility. One of the things is that all of us hate to see a child starve, a child struggle, um, a family 
that it's in crisis. And for me, um, we came up to the United States and my sister got in, even though we were put in good high schools, my mother did all she could. Um, you know, she got, my sister got in with the wrong group and she ended up getting pregnant by this guy that would beat her up. And my mother was devastated that this should happen. And, but my mother's working two jobs and it's very difficult then to be able to supervise my sister. So she ends up pregnant by this guy and, and he would beat her up. Um, and that with her, she would try to run away from him. He wouldn't let her basically get a job that paid more than him. He wouldn't let her finish high school. He wanted to keep control over her. And so then she would run away. And at that point in time, she actually needed services. She needed welfare. She needed to stabilize. She needed to know her kids were going to be fed for the next week or so. But as soon as she started getting her wherewithal, and she was a lot like my mother, that she wanted to work and she still had this vision of, you know, if I could really get out there and, and show what I'm really good at, that she could do it. But again, she couldn't get a decent job that would pay enough to raise three kids. And so she was left with, well, do I stay on welfare or do I go back to this guy who, again, would promise not to beat her up again? So there was a role for the services that um, that I think I ran a lot of, which actually made her situation, her crisis tolerable. We we also accepted like Hurricane Sandy, I think it was. And, you know, it went through a middle class neighborhood and destroyed all their homes. And so we you know, the Red Cross goes in and during a crisis, you need outside help. You need counseling. You may even need welfare, you know, if your home's been destroyed and jobs have been destroyed, even if you're middle income. So there is a role for making, you know, people that fall into poverty for whatever reason to make it tolerable. We don't want everybody dying. But the fact is that after 50 years of the war on poverty, that that primarily is all we've done is been able to make poverty tolerable for those that are eligible for all these different programs that we have created and and. Um, that I don't think was ever what um, my family and other families come to the United States for. We really come here to be able to get a chance to really exceed and be able to have the upward mobility that the history of the United States really has talked about. So there is the difference, and, and it is necessary to make poverty tolerable, certainly, you know, whether it's in Africa or in South America or whatever. But really what we have not focused on is how to make poverty escapable. And even though people work really hard and they become working poor, something happens when they're working poor. And we can talk more about that. But, you know, in the United States, they get above poverty level. They're working one or two jobs, but they're really on edge and they are not able to then move further ahead. And it is that upward mobility past being working poor and, and earning 10 or $15 an hour that it, that we're missing in this country and that upward mobility, how are you going to tackle it? You can't tackle it by looking at the weaknesses in people. You actually have to start looking at the talents and initiative that they take. And helping them realize it, which is what your book's about. And I want to get to the, uh, the part of your story where you start on a very different vision of how that might be possible in 1999. Um, Jerry Brown, who at the time was mayor of Oakland, uh, asked you for suggestions on how to fight poverty, and you had a very strange idea, ultimately. So tell us why he called you in. What were you doing that made you a person that he would call you in? And talk about what you ended up suggesting and what happened as a result. 
Well, it's a very strange story. And this, this goes back to one of the original questions I think you asked in terms of, well, is there something about me that's really special? Um, I, there is this serendipity that has happened in my life. Um, and the issue of Jerry calling me was very strange to me because I sat on a board uh, of the private industry council that handled a lot of the workforce training money for the city of Oakland. And I was one of about 17 or 18 board members. Jerry had known my services. Uh, and so I know he was conscious of what I had done, but there were like 17 other people that were very accomplished. Uh, and somehow or other, he decides to call me and I could never understand. And actually, I just talked to him just a few days ago. I can never understand why me. Um, but the same thing had happened. I got invited to State of the Union address by President Clinton. Um, I got into UC Berkeley. Uh, these were circumstances that somehow or other happened in my life. And if you read some of the stories in Outliers uh, by in the book by Malcolm Gladwell, um, there are stories of people like Steve Jobs and others where circumstances led to their success. And that those are the kinds of things that have happened to me. So why exactly Jerry Brown would call me? Uh, not that I was dumb or anything else. I had accomplished something. But why me? Uh, I'm not totally clear. But at that but, point, at that point, you're running, you're taking government money from federal, state, local, I don't know where, and trying to help train gang members and uh, people in really desperate straits to help them become more productive. Is that is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, I ran social service programs for about 20 years, which actually was a long time. Although 10 years into it, I knew I wouldn't bring my own family through my own services. Um, somehow or other, they were still, <laughs> the programs are still considered really successful. And then, you know, the president invites me to stay at the union address. And, and I'm over there, well, this is dumb. If, if, you know, my programs are some of the best in the country, then our standards are way too low because I wouldn't bring my own family through. Now Why that I not? had money, because they were paternalistic. My mother hated that. She said, you know, the social workers are really nice, but they take away my pride. And certainly the racists would take away her pride, too. You know, and the sexual harassers would take away her pride. But even the, the people who are trying to be really nice would take her pride away. I, and so that was one of the issues. The other issue is that the, the programs that I had were sold and, and the structures were to sell to get funding. Funders don't really understand circumstances on the ground, but they get certain interests. And so you have to shape your program based on what they kind of want in order to get the money. And that then you're held accountable you know, to those kind of standards where I actually had started two businesses within my own nonprofit that in, when you're running a business, you have to meet the customer demand not the investor demand. You have to really meet the customer demand. And so somehow or other, when I wanted to adjust my programs, they were not responsive to my customers. And so for me, my social service programs were too structured, too paternalistic. They did not recognize or, or meet that market demand. And now that I was middle income and had money, I would instead, when I had to help my nephew and nieces who struggle with drugs and, and all kinds of things, I would then go to private sector services because they would say, well, do you want us to send the advisor in the weekend or the evenings or what's convenient for you? And would you like this program? I was given choices because I had money. 
but people that were poor didn't have those kind of choices. And so why would I want to take my own family that struggled with everything that everybody else was struggling with out there in some of these neighborhoods? Why would I take him into a system that was so structured and was not responsive when I had money? So money made a difference. And I realized that, no, I, I wouldn't bring my own family. So when, when Jerry Brown came to you, he, he offered you a, he, he gave you a um, hypothetical, right? He basically said, if you had a lot of money, what would you do? I guess, you, by the way, your other complaint about your, your programs was you were, as you write in the book, you were aware that, that the staff was quite expensive and that the cost of helping these people was quite large and that you were helping them in these paternalistic ways was disturbing to you. So Jerry Brown says, here's a, you know, take a clean sheet of paper. What do you think you should do? And as you write in the book, you didn't have anything to say at first. You were kind of slack jawed, but eventually you came back a few weeks later. And what was your idea? It was a crazy idea. Well, it was, um, you know, getting what Jerry said is, look, if you could do anything you wanted to do and money and regulations were not a problem, because that's what I complained about. He said money regulations are not a problem, but you wanted to really bring about some fundamental change. What would you do? And you come to my office next month and tell me about it. And so for two weeks, I struggled with this idea. Wow. You know, what if I could do anything I wanted to do? And I really care about these issues and the people I grew up with. And finally came to a conclusion, if I really wanted fundamental change, I really didn't know how to bring it about. Uh, the other thing was, and it alludes back to a little bit of a conversation we had earlier, is growing up in these neighborhoods, I saw that, yes, there was, you know, that 3% in the neighborhood that were kind of stuck in poverty or some of their kids got in trouble, but almost everybody really, really worked and they worked really hard. And yet in my social service programs, uh, you know, I would look at the population and say, well, these people are showing up my program. They're really needy. And you but they were living in the same kind of neighborhood. I couldn't reconcile the, the, the two realities. And so what ended up happening is that I wasn't quite sure about whether my experience had was just my personal experience. Maybe I just happened to be in neighborhoods. Uh, where there was initiative and where there was resourcefulness and all these other people lived in some other neighborhood. So I had developed uh, a journaling system to learn about all other people's lives, the ones that were coming into my programs. Remember, I was running programs for 20 years. And so I started actually asking them to tell, it, tell me what their life was like to see if it was like what I had experienced. And as the journaling was coming in, I was seeing that, yeah, you know, they actually work really hard, too, and they have talents and whatever. But when they come to my program, they will only get into my program if they show me how needy they are. You know, my program will never ask them if they're talented. And so, you know, I don't get funding if I bring in people that are talented. So obviously there was a there was a problem on that side. So then when I go in with Jerry and he asked me, what would you do? I said, well, I don't know what to do. But what I do have is I have a journaling system that I developed in the 90s. And that uh, what I would do is I would ask these families what to do, because I think they would know better how to improve their own lives. Certainly, my mother figured out what to do with me, other people I've seen. So I think the experts are really in the in the neighborhoods, but we can collect that information. And, I, and again, if you help me put this journaling system online, I'll give all the families I enroll a computer and ask them to journal and tell us what they're doing and see if we can help them in that way. But there was one other aspect that actually was really important, which is in Mexico, 
Um, if you ever had a crisis or trouble or like my sister started getting in with the wrong people, all our neighbors would tell us and the neighbors would scold my sister. And, you know, there was a whole sense of community and, and there's good and bad parts to, sure. you know, neighbors knowing everything that you do. And yeah. so, so, you know, it, but there was a sense of support and that I knew that my mother missed that support she said of her uncle and, and her friends in Mexico. And that up in the United States, this issue of friends and community helping one another was not very strong here. So I told Jerry, so look at what I'm going to do is people do need other people. Certainly when you're poor, especially you hit crises, but I promised him, okay, I want to get clean data. Remember I was an engineer. I want to clean data. I don't want to learn what families will do if my advisor tells them to do something. I want to know what they would do on their own. What's their capacity but I will enroll them only if they come in with six or seven of their other friends and say, you know, you cannot turn to my staff. You have to turn to each other. And that's what I had experienced is in a neighborhood, you start watching your neighbors or talking to them said, so I'm going to enroll them as a group and I'm going to ask them to journal monthly online. Uh, everybody will get a computer. And from that data, we're bound to learn something. And that's how this project got started. It really was a research and learning project more than anything else. And the crazy part that I, I just, it's, it's going to be such a good miniseries on uh, Netflix. But my, my, the part that I love is that you told your staff, uh, and this is the Family Independence Initiative, FII, you told your staff that if they helped people, they'd be fired. And so this was a very different mindset for a social worker or a staff member working with people who are, quote, poor, underprivileged, handicapped, disadvantaged. And there's a natural impulse of all of us to reach out and say, I can do this for you. Let me help you. And you tell a couple stories in the book over people had to, you know, they, it just, they would lie to you. They, they would hide from you what they were doing for people. And talk about some of those examples of what uh, a staff member would do and why that was such a, a bad thing that you needed to stop? Well, the overall obviously is that I was an engineer. I wanted clean data about the capacity of the families of themselves and of how much they would help each other. And so obviously to me, it was very logical as an engineer that I had to keep outsiders out of the way. Otherwise I wouldn't know what the capacity truly was. Okay. So that's the overall. Um, the dilemma is more what you described is that there is a tendency to want to help. And certainly people that would want to take a job with a nonprofit like mine, the Family Independence Initiative, would join that job uh, in order to be helpful. And so I had to threaten them. And one of the uh, actually, there's a couple stories in the book. I have several stories in the book about this whole thing. The, the most significant, though, was uh, that. Um, the staff realized that uh, I would fire. I had fired a couple people before for being helpful, but one of them, I forget what name I used in the book, but he was trying to hide the fact that he was helping people. And so uh, we came to realize it because his hour, the number of hours he was charging me and the program kept rising, but the number of families he was actually supposed to be the liaison for in order, you know, for us to make sure the reports are done and audited and whatever, that's what his job was supposed to be, his really jobs and auditing and uh, being able to capture the stories. But his hours kept going up and it was costing me more money. 
And so then we started investigating and found out that he was helping people do their journals monthly. Uh, he, they were Latino families. Many of them had no education. Um, they were not putting email uh, addresses together, which is how we were supposed to communicate. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, if I was smart enough to barely make it through Berkeley, all these other people are just as smart as me. I, I'm pretty average. And so they could figure out how to do an email address, but he felt sorry for them. So he was helping them. And so I told him, you know, I'm going to have to fire you. And he went back to all these families that he had been helping. He said, well, I'm going to be fired. And so, you know, you know, will you guys protest my firing? And so they put together a big protest and they wanted to meet with me. And there were probably a good 25, 30 families at this meeting where actually they had put together protest signs, don't fire him. And so, you know, for me, then I showed the a video clip to all these families and saying, look at when people talk about you as these families, and that are poor, here's what people say about you. And there was, you know, a, a clipping from Newt Gingrich saying how, you know, families are really bad and liberals that were saying same thing. They don't know how to make good decisions. And so it was kind of like across the political spectrum that this is how people think of you as parents that are very low income. The other piece is that my liaison there is actually costing me a lot of money. And that if instead I would give the money to you guys, that you could help each other to put together an email address or whatever. And they're over there. Well, you mean that we could get that money that you're paying him? And I said, well, yes, that was the original intent with Jerry Brown is that we're going to pay you for doing the work that normally social workers and whatever they do. And so once they got a sense that actually they could earn it, then you could see the protest kind of shifting. Then this woman in the back stands up and says, but I've never done an email. How am I supposed to do it? And that's when a 17 year old or something like that stood up in the front. She turned around to that woman and says, I'll help you. I'll help all of you. And at that point, the entire protest died. There, there is one other story that actually was really significant. And um, the names I use in the book is uh, Javier and Maria. This is actually the story that had that impacted me or the experience that impacted me that led me uh, to be able to actually fire staff later on that tried to be helpful. When the project first started about seven months into the project, uh, there were a group of refugees from the war in El Salvador. And it was a group that had all of their savings they had were being sent in remittances back to El Salvador to their village. And that their goals as a group and individually were really to have their kids do well in school and keep their health together because they wanted to go back to El Salvador. So I'm over there, well, I don't know what we're going to learn from this group, but we'll see. And then one day my staff comes in and from the monthly meetings, the families are required to have a monthly meeting for us to hear the stories behind the data. This data can be really misleading. And they said, well, Javier, Maria, um, got approached by the Spanish-speaking real estate agent who promised them they could he could help them buy this house. And we think he's a predatory lender. Can we talk to the families or, or give them any advice or at least send them to financial training? Um, and I'm over there looking at this and, and believing them and said, well, no, because I promised Jerry Brown that we would not help. 
that we would just see what people do. And my mother made mistakes and we need to understand those mistakes too. But admittedly, I wanted to help. So my staff backed off and sure enough, because a real estate agent makes his money upon uh, closing, he was able to get uh, them to closing by putting in mortgage insurance, but it ended up that their mortgage payments were 65% of their income. And my staff goes back to me and 65% of their income, there's no way they can keep that house and still clothe and feed their kids. They're going to lose the house. And I felt terrible because I'm looking in, you know, our data system and what they, we see all their income. We see all their savings, the families, uh, we pay them and they're very uh, trusting. We verify all the data they give us. And I'm over there looking at, at their income and expense and saying, yeah, they're going to lose the house. And I felt really bad. And then the lesson started. So what ended up happening is somewhere along the line, Javier and Maria are smart. They figured out this was a scammer. It's not made off or something like that, but it was a scammer. And so they had a, um, what do you call it? Uh, refinance clause put into the contract. And after closing, they had borrowed money from all kinds of friends in the neighborhood. And those friends descended on the house, repainted, retiled it, re-landscaped it. They got the valuation of the house up. And then they were able to refinance with me sitting in. I knew some Spanish. Me sitting in on the refinance. Uh, they got their payments down to about 40% of their income. But with this whole group of friends surrounding them, it was clear they were not going to lose that house. And they still own that house here in, in Oakland. So that was the first lesson is that the solution of, you know, getting a refinance clause and then having all your friends come in and, and get the value up and refinance was not something my staff probably could have figured out, even if we wanted to help them. Uh, certainly what we would have done is, done is talk them out of getting the house. And here they have a house that has equity now. The second set of lessons came about two months later. Because again, we have an online data tracking system and I could see the savings for every family. And so all the other five families, I believe, that were part of that group, their savings, the red line for savings started going up. Before, remember, they were setting, sending, sending all their savings back to El Salvador. So I went to a meeting and said, how come you guys are all saving? And they said, well, and they looked at Javier and Maria and says, if, if they can buy a house, we can buy a house. It was clear that Javier and Maria were positive deviants, what are called positive deviants, which we have to talk at some point because that's what's really important. They deviated from the norm and they were successful. And so they became a role model that then was tested by the other families. Within 18 months of the red lines going up, every other Salvadoran refugee family owned a house in the United States. So that was the second lesson. Then the third, they start saying, well, you know, all our other friends in the refugee community are hearing about us. And so they're starting to buy homes. It changed the trajectory of expectations of what could be accomplished in the United States because of that role model. If we had saved that family from buying a house, none of this would have happened. None of this would have changed. Then about a year and a half or two years ago, I was doing a presentation at Stanford. And so there's 15 years after this Javier and Maria story. And I told Javier Maria's story to the audience. And afterwards, this young man walks up to me and he says, so, you know, I'm and my family are from El Salvador and my mother heard about your family's buying houses. And so our family decided to buy a house. And it's the equity from that house that got me through Stanford. So thank you very much. It's a high point in your life. <laughs> That's a pretty beautiful moment. 
it was an amazing moment. And so that was 15 years, you know, before. And so after that, it was much easier to fire people. Let me understand better, though, what you what you actually did with the families in your in this nonprofit. First, give me a feel for how many families they were. Is it 15 or 20 or is it more? Secondly, you said you paid them. Like, how much money did you pay them? And in return, they journaled. They got a computer. And they had to journal. What were they journaling about? You know, what was their what was the goal of what you would learn from them? And how was that useful to other families and not just you as a researcher? So um, you'll probably have to restate some of the questions because I'll get lost in these these stories. But um, essentially what when I ran social services, I would have to pay consultants, evaluators to come in and they'd go and interview families to get their income and expenses and whatever to do my evaluations for my funders. In this particular case, we were getting uh, the families to actually provide us that data. And I would verify it uh, every about three months. Um, and the thing is that we also required them not only to journal, but to meet monthly and then to go through an auditor verification. That took their time. And where I used to pay evaluating consultants $75 to $150 an hour, essentially what I did is I calculated about how many hours it was going to take the families to go through the process I wanted, which is you have to journal and you have to meet and you have to do all this. And what I came up with a figure that was about, at that point in time, about $30, $30 an hour. So I basically put it into... I'm willing, if you're willing to go through this process, I will compensate you. I won't do it an hour early, but it was the equivalent of about $30 an hour in terms of the amount of time it's going to take you. And that's the compensation you're going to get. So this was both cheaper for me than hiring a bunch of outside evaluators to go try to interview families. But all you did, um, all you did as the nonprofit was give them a computer, require them, and then pay them for their time to keep track of their lives in that journaling process. How did they get better? What, what's the process by which, how did you encourage them? What was the, what did they learn from each other that helped them? Well, obviously, you know, like Javier and Maria was clear, we didn't encourage them. If anything, we'd have, if I had let my staff <laughs> talk to them, we would have discouraged them. Um, so the biggest thing was sort of what I mentioned were positive deviants that uh, behavioral studies will show you that what happens in any grouping of people is that people are always trying to think of ideas and there are barriers or there are opportunities that they want to take advantage of and somebody will come up with some idea or some method or some action that will get you through that barrier or that will take advantage of an opportunity. Those people in a group, certainly it's not the entire group, but those people that do that, that deviation, those are called what are called positive deviants. So that was Javier Maria. Okay. Then um, this is all under diffusion of innovation, which is behavioral study theory. That what happens is if there is a positive deviation, and I think the book Tipping Point also talks about it, uh, and somebody starts wearing hush puppies, which is what Malcolm Gladwell talked about in his book, that then there are his, the friends that decide they're going to be early adopters. So we're also going to wear hush puppies because we're going to then be the cool group. Or in the case of the Javier Maria, it's like, well, we're also going to buy a house. So all of a sudden, not it wasn't just that there was an idea, but there were early adopters that tested that idea and that they start buying homes. The positive deviants aren't 
probably the most important because people have ideas and there's individuals that because of circumstance, like for me, my circumstance uh, is not a circumstance everybody gets. What actually is important are the early adopters. When other people kind of of the same circumstance start following and actually are succeeding on an idea, that's what starts to then be catchy for other folks. Oh, so they're kind of cool, so therefore that can be done. So the Javier Maria story is that it was the other families being able to buy homes that then led to a big tipping point where then in that particular refugee community where word of mouth really spread, the expectations would truly change. So this is all called diffusion of innovation, and it starts with positive deviance. And so in many ways that what the data was looking for is for positive deviations. So we'd see the data and most people don't know what to do. You know, and that's when they go to social service programs and everybody says, well, nobody knows what to do. So we have to help them. Well, what we don't discover is the positive deviance because they're the ones that figure out their own solution. That's what we should be looking for. And then once you see a positive deviation, what our data system does is we basically say, Javier Maria bought a house. If you want to buy a house, go talk to them. Don't talk to my staff. My staff wasn't the one that bought the house. Go talk to Javier Maria. And we tell Javier Maria, so you're now the expert. So now can people go to you and ask you for advice? And I can tell you, almost anybody who's low income, to be told that they're an expert of something and be the advisor and the counselor, they love it. So sure. of course they will help each other. And so all of a sudden, again, you don't need a whole bunch of staff being trained. One of the best documented um experiences around positive deviance, early adopters, and how it can scale through tipping point is a project run by Save the Children in Vietnam around nutrition in the villages quite a while back, but it was really well documented where they were able to find basically families that were positive deviants that their children were doing well nutritionally within the village, whereas the whole was not, the children were not doing well. So it is really well documented that, again, if you take a grouping of people, which it helped because I only enrolled families when they came in with groups, and somebody of the group then did something different that was positive. Obviously, you can have negative deviance, yeah. too. You join a, you join a gang yeah. or something. Drugs. But if you actually validate the positive deviance, you know, so Javier and Maria, you know, go talk to them. Then all of a sudden, other people will say, you know, I think I can do that, too. And they start then following. And this is how the black townships were built during Reconstruction. Once the towns start getting put together and people pooled their money, they had lending circles or whatever, and they put together a barbershop. And then people in another area said, OK, well, we can start a town and we can put a barbershop together. And now, this is actually how all these committees have kind of done it, is they've had to pool their money and help each other and share expertise. Again, the positive deviant actually can make a huge, huge difference, and there's tons of examples. Some are in, in the book. But you talk in the book that uh, the families that you were working with had fairly large increases in income while they were in the program, which um, I've come to believe is one of our failings as economists – we focus on things we can measure, uh, but income when you're poor is not unimportant. I, I would argue that dignity and pride and a sense of, of responsibility are also important. But when you're poor, income counts a lot. Um, how, how did their self-reliance and sharing of information help them become more productive? I can understand that 
if I see other people buying a house, I can stop sending money to El Salvador and start keeping it here in the United States for a down payment. Or I can try to spend a little bit less and increase the amount I have available so there can be a, a behavioral change. But you actually found that among your families, people did did better over time. And I assume, I don't know if you've tracked this, but I assume their children also did fairly well. So I assume some of what they were sharing with each other was how they were treating their children and education and so on. Talk about what might have been the, what are some of the mechanisms, the mechanisms by which that was happening? I think, you know, these are kind of mechanisms I think you and I probably take for granted at this point in time. If somebody's like you, you know, uh, like I was a pretty ordinary kid and some other ordinary kid, not the exception. You know, I always felt like these, some, most of these kids were smarter than me and they got straight A's and whatever, and they were going to succeed and I could never do that. But when somebody like you starts succeeding, then it inspires you. And what's fascinating is that you may actually follow the exact same path. So for a while, you know, the back in the mid 1800s, the Irish start penetrating the police department in Boston. And then all of a sudden you start getting a bunch of Irishmen going into jobs in, as policemen. And you saw the Polish going to meat factories, et cetera. Uh, for the Chinese in the 60s, it was like you send your kid, if you go to college, you're going to be a pharmacist. And so there were that type of, of following and, and, you know, the parents obviously would play a role in it. But I think that the biggest thing that I saw, because incomes start jumping 20, 30 percent, is that in many ways, our country has been discouraging initiative. Uh, and that what happened is once you saw some positive deviation of, oh, somebody like me now has a better job, maybe I could strive at least in that same direction. Sometimes it was in, in the same network, so they would refer to each other. So for people doing my landscaping, they ended up knowing somebody who could do the foundation and do my driveway. And, you know, so a lot of them were going into construction. Maybe not exactly the same thing because some were better electricians and some were better whatever. But uh, I think what ended up happening is that because the project itself just enrolled people that were really around the poverty level, after a while they start saying, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And it was that inspiration. And I think that's how my mother came to this country, feeling inspired that, you know, we're going to go there, we're going to work hard, and we're going to be able to do it. And what she found is that both, you know, you know, being called a potential criminal would have, you know, it was really so discouraging. And the names that we call people and that um, her kids are struggling in school and, you know, that that it was just really, really difficult. But that pride, that inspiration is really what drives it. And we saw income in really jumping up. And probably the most fascinating thing to me uh, when that first grouping that we had about 25 families, um, there was a, a group that's primarily African-American, not totally, another, because they remember they, they bring in their own friends. We have a group that were the, the refugees from the war in El Salvador and a group that were refugees from the war in Vietnam, the Mien people. Um, and that the, the income jumps for the African-American group was 37% within two years. What was the next piece was that for the refugees from the war in El Salvador, it was only 23%, but they start buying homes where the African-Americans were starting businesses. Not everybody, but they seemed to inspire each other to start businesses. And that the income increase for the Asian group was only 18%. 
But what they actually were able to do is they were able to stop gang wars. If their kids had been joining gangs, they, that community had the highest incarceration rate of any ethnic group in Oakland. It was the men people. They were able to retract their kids from joining gangs to instead starting to go to college. And now these kids go to four-year colleges. So these are self-chosen success measures. So it's not just income. But the African-Americans did the best in terms of income and and to home ownership that that particular Salvadoran group because of Javier Maria. And for the Asian group, it was really dealing with the gang problems. And we need to give people the chance and the choice to really deal with what they think is the most important, because ultimately it just leads to better lives for everybody and for all our communities. So you write, um, as a quote, as a society... We need to learn that top-down solutions have never been the true instruments of change. You also, end of quote, then you also write, many of us have control over but do not fully understand the social and economic experiences that make up the world of those we try to help. Thus, we are constantly in danger of doing more harm than good. Those two quotes could have been written by the great economist F.A. Hayek. Uh, or the lesser economist, me, uh, about the dangers of unintended consequences and how top-down solutions are often blunt and not very effective. So I'm very sympathetic to your approach. Uh, the skeptic in me says, what you're really claiming is that what was holding these people back was a self-image of themselves as failures, as wards of the state, as people who, who couldn't possibly succeed on their own. And once we, once you change that self-image, they were able to thrive. That sounds, um, I don't know, a little bit rose-colored, even for me. So tell me I'm, that that's wrong. Tell me it, it really is a powerful thing and that it's more than 25 families, which is, you know, fantastic, but it's only 25 families. Well, now it's over 10,000 families, but um, you're only half right. Uh, I think that for a lot of the families that I grew up with, remember, humanity is is a mixture of everything, right? And so, again, the stereotype will, will never fit. Um, so the self-image piece, I think that it is, uh, in terms of building self-image, that let's say that's only half of the population. The other half of the population already has, you know, like my mother was very confident. She was just pissed that, you know, that outsiders had that image of her, you know, Mexican single mom, third grade education. So it was, for most people, it's both uh, a combination of how the outside world views you and how it treats you and the kind of opportunities it, it makes available to you. And sometimes, say, especially during your depressed periods, you feel your self-image goes down, your self-confidence goes down, and in other periods it goes up. So again, we can't, we just have to understand humanity is kind of a mix of all of these emotions and they all interplay. I think what's interesting is that if you are in a community that somehow has a very strong sense of pride or uh, uh, strength in their religion or, or whatever, that that image then not only can open up some opportunities because there'll be positive deviance in there that break through, but it also helps the kid's self-image. So you know, though that type of combination of um, self-image is certainly what we as FII could say, look at 
I think you as families, you can come up with better solutions. Maybe you're not going to become rich or whatever, but you have better solutions than my staff because, you know, I'm going to fire a staff in order to show you that. So I think FII and the projects that I'm working on, I'm going to Liberia now, whatever, that what we do is we set up an ecosystem says, look at no outsider is going to be able to understand your life. You're the only expert and I'm willing to trust you with the money I raise, which is a big marker for them. So that I think is really helpful. The problem we still have is the outside image. And that is what FII has not been able to change. So now FII is getting funded by Google and, and some, you know, stand together. And, and so it is getting attention, but it's getting attention because it's a program. The image of low-income families still hasn't changed. So I'm trying to prove that the capacity is in these communities themselves. You don't have to have an FII. You just need to have an environment that's really trusting. So we're going to go to Liberia, where 90% of the population is in poverty. They're having to create their own jobs. We're basically going to go there and say, look at, there are outsiders that are interested in your economy. You're the only ones building the economy right now because corporations have left. The government is still pretty screwed up. And right now you're fighting malaria. Um, but you have created your own jobs. And as you do that, we're going to then look for investors into what you do. And anything that's built, then it's going to be built by you. That trust in the fact that these people, any people that are low income, do have talent and resourcefulness, that's what we're trying to prove is that actually we have 75% of the world lives around poverty and we're missing mathematicians, talents, dress designers, like my mother. We're missing all of these amazing talents. These are people that will then start buying computers and they'll start buying more diapers. I mean, this is good for business. Yeah. Well, so somehow or other, there, again, there's positive deviance and things that can happen. And then what we need to do is actually recognize and putting some of our energy and our resources and certainly the validation is really, really big. I want to get a, a little better picture, though, of of your program on the ground for these families. So let let's say I'm one of these families. I'm I'm teetering on the edge of the poverty line. It might be below it, sometimes slightly above it, but I'm not doing so great. I maybe have just come here from, from El Salvador, as as one of your groups did, and I have a choice. I can either go on government welfare, which gives me thousands of dollars of food and health care, and uh, housing aid and, and other programs, maybe a training program like the one you used to run, why would I come to you in return for a computer and a, the opportunity to be paid for my time to do some journaling? What did they get out of the program that was transformative either from each other or from the um, the program itself that I'm missing? I'm missing something. <laughs> You're missing what? I think most of our society feels is like uh, a mechanism. And I do think that when I go to some of the meetings that the families have and that I've never met, uh, there's just some city and I go there and they start thanking me. And I said, but I didn't do anything. And what I have two written notes basically saying, but you trusted us. So I'm not sure how to convince people that, being thought of as smart and capable, uh, I mean, that's like so key when we raise teenagers. 
And so that is a huge change. As parents, we know that is really, really key. So that self-confidence and that validation from the outside and, you know, these rich parents trying to get their kids into UCLA and or the different colleges. I mean, they know that it's that environment that actually sets them up for success. So but how did your, me, how did your program create that environment for them? In other words, if I just one model would be that you just contacted this family on their own and said, here, here's a computer. Keep a journal. It'll help you. But you're doing something else that I'm missing where they interact with each well, other. Is. How, what is it? No. Okay. So the the two things that I think make, and everything's kind of in duality. On the one hand, it is we trust you, you know, and therefore go help each other, go learn from each other. The second piece is how do you learn from each other? So one of the biggest changes that's happened, you know, in this century is technology. And that what you've seen is people come together um, through cell phones or whatever, the Arab Spring of, of people then protesting what they wanted, you know, and the change in Egypt or other places that um, technology really changes things. And that the piece that we also brought in, and I think that's the biggest role of FII that we haven't actually talked about, is the use of technology. That what we were able to do is, on the one hand, go into a neighborhood and said, oh, bring in some of your other neighbors. And there was some positive deviance that happened out of that. But we also knew that some of the families in Boston were starting a cafe that was really similar to the cafe being done by the New Orleans families. And so they wanted to be able to talk to each other. What's fascinating today is that technology allows people to communicate and see each other's successes across all of these technology platforms. And so one of the things that FI has done is not only do we have a journal where people see their own data, and it's kind of like, kind of like Fitbit and Mint.com, basically, oh, this month I've done really well, they are able to also see how the rest of the families in their cohort or their city are doing. Oh, and I'm doing better than the other families or I'm not doing as well. I better go find out what they're doing, that kind of thing. And that it really is the reason Fitbit and Mint.com work is because it is inspiring to you. It kind of helps you plan your life. Okay, so that's one thing. Second piece is when somebody says, well, but some of those families are doing better than me. Let me find out what they're doing. There is also technology platforms, kind of like Facebook or LinkedIn, that people go into and they can see what people are in New Orleans are doing. Oh, these are the people that are putting cafes together. These are the people that are getting jobs like this. And there is a section that says, be an expert, which means I'm the one that bought the house and you can come to me or find an expert. I'm looking for, you know, whoever built a house. So essentially now this can be across the country. Now it's being taken to Li Liberia, so and we're going to be international. So there's another platform being put together called Elevate that is actually going to let people see what are the initiatives that people are taking in Liberia. And then we're going to tie the diaspora from Liberia and other people that are concerned about Liberia to be able to see what those folks are doing. And now those people can put their pool, they pull their money together and be able to invest in the sewing machine for a woman that we met in Liberia that sells charcoal, but is really a great dress designer like my mother. So these, this is the way that technology can now go across boundaries that we've normally not seen before. And for all the bad part of technology, the fact is my mother could have shown her dress designs 
online today through Etsy or whatever, where in her day, she couldn't do that. She was stuck with only the people that she could meet physically. So technology, I think, is our biggest contributor to the families, but it's not the, the driving force. The driving force is seeing somebody like you succeed and wanting the same thing and going after and researching it. So technology lets you. Do they see that only through the online platform or do they also meet together as a group? In our project, they meet together as a group. The one in Liberia, they all, almost all the families are, you go through a church and they meet every Sunday after mass. Uh, and the reason we're going to Liberia is that we have families in our Boston project, Boston FII project that are from Liberia and basically said, look at Africa does not need any more programs from you guys, but this FII approach, which is not bringing programs is just getting us connections with each other. Then you need to bring FII, at least the approach, not FII, but the approach to Liberia. My board did not want to do that, at least the national board. And so the, the sure. reverend, that, yeah, the, the reverend that came up to me says, well, I'm going to do it. He went back to Liberia and he was in a mass, you know, after, after the mass uh, talking with families and said, well, you know, all you've been doing is talking about Jesus and all the problems you have. Have you ever told each other what you're doing? For instance, you're out there trying to sell some baked goods and whatever, and you're doing that because he knew some of the families. And they said, oh, and they start talking with each other. They said, oh, you're doing that. And you're doing that. And all of a sudden, then they start sharing a very different set of information. And so that whole thing, he then termed the Community Independence Initiative. He started it with no money. Those uh, positive deviant examples then start going on the radio. And now it is spread into two counties. So now we're going to bring in outsiders to say, look at you show us what you're doing. We may be willing to invest in it. And again, technology is going to allow that investment to come even across the, the country borders. Yeah, you know, I should have asked you this earlier. Forgive me. But when you when your family is participating in your program journal, uh, what's the rough outline of what that require? What the, what's that requirement? Is it, it's not? It, well, tell me. Well, the FII, which was with Jerry Brown, was set up as a research project, so it collects what can be over two hundred data points on a monthly basis. But we only collect changes, and everything in your life does not change every month. So. Now it only takes about 17 minutes on average to fill out your monthly journal. But that's, it could be up to 200 data points because we want to see their entire life, including who they helped or who helped them, et cetera. The, we started a project in Singapore. That is probably down to about 50 or 60 data points. So again, it's, it's much less um, in terms of Singapore, but they also have a journaling platform that's been developed out there. The one in Liberia is only going to be probably about 10 data points that this is information. The data points do help people to understand their own lives. But, you know, broadband in Liberia is just not the same thing as broadband here in Singapore. And so over there, it's much more limited. It's going to be more the social connection. So radio obviously is going to play a role and people talking with one another after church is going to be a role. Uh, so the data points are not as heavy it is still going to be around what's your income, where are you earning it from, who have you helped, are you sending money to some of your family in Northern Village that's as much poorer, what initiative are they taking, are you starting any businesses, are, you know, what are you doing, and then if you're working with anybody, 
you have this Elevate platform that you can advertise, basically. It's kind of like Kiva. So you can say, look, there's a bunch of us in this one area that if we had a sewing machine, then we could actually start selling dresses instead of selling charcoal. So that's the kind of stuff that I think we can facilitate. We're almost, um, in many ways, kind of like Amazon, we're more a fulfillment agent. In other words, the families are the ones that are going to produce everything. And the investors are the ones that are looking for something. And we're kind of that intermediary that allows them to connect. So for Amazon, is that they look for patterns and then they sell you know, products to you. Uh, but they're not the ones that produce all of the different products. So we're using technology in the way that business uses technology so that we don't have to do a longitudinal study and say, well, this is the trend that's going to happen for the next three years, which never happens. Basically, data right now is real time. And so people can see projects and initiatives and whatever in real time and be able to invest in them in real time. And that's what's different about the world today. But when you say invest, you don't mean... You have a really sad story. I'm going to send you a check every month. Mm -mm. You know, I think there's plenty of platforms for we feel sorry for you. You know, our whole thing is, no, you know, you should admire these folks. You know, so as a woman that has three kids and then supporting them by selling charcoal, which she says, I can't collect charcoal when it rains. Right. And but she's like this talented dress designer like my mother. So, you know, basically it's, well, then show us your talents. And that's really what we focus on. That's what FI has always focused on. And that's why we were invited to Africa. So then how would somebody invest in that dressmaker? I think for us, what we're trying to do is make visible a lot of the initiative that people are taking. So if you are a dressmaker and uh, you need a sewing machine, that obviously you can put it up online the way Kiva does or, or whatever, and people can look at it and say, okay, well, I'm going to invest in you. And platforms right now allow you to actually transfer money, uh, actually in Africa, to cell phones. And so, you know, if you have a cell phone, you can actually get the investment directly. And then more like angel investors, you can track the progress of what is going on. It's like, has it created a job or has the wage gone up, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, In the United States, actually, the investments that we're making now is that we have a pot of money that people say, well, we want to help people in Detroit or we want to help people in whatever. And that the technology in FII in the United States has gotten to the point that we can actually track not just the increases in income or changes that people are doing, but we can track who's helping who and what are the actual social interactions that are happening. And the staff there has developed a set of algorithms that they've been testing to come up with basically what's an alternative credit score. A lot of our families have bad credit score because their car broke down or a kid got sick. It isn't that they're not reliable. It's just that some incident destroyed their credit rating. So instead, what we have is like we capture the initiative data and it's been translated through an algorithm to an initiative score. And once you're scored at a certain level, because you're taking whatever initiative you are, then you're eligible to then do a drawdown of the money that's been set aside for you, or for your groups, for that city or for that for FII. So in FII in the United States is becoming very, very sophisticated What's happening in countries like Singapore, again, it's going to try to move into that, something like that. But in Liberia, where, again, the broadband isn't to the point that we could actually collect that much data, 
then it is going to be more stories and churches coming together and more where the self groupings are. And then being able to demonstrate that either to people in another, con- in another county in Liberia, like I said, there's two counties already involved, or even across to, to the diaspora from Liberia that's in the United States. Going back to the beginning and in the early days, uh, how frustrated were you or not by the school system in Oakland that the children of these families were attending? Uh, you know, you talk a lot about resourcefulness and initiative and talent, but of course, formal education's not unimportant in America. And I've always felt that poor people who in urban areas are handicapped by the quality of the school systems they're in. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's my my starting point. Did you observe that? in in Oakland in, in those times? Yes, I'm, my kids started in public school and then the public school system in Oakland collapsed and was taken over by the state. So I had enough money to then at least middle school and high school to go to a private school, like Catholic school for high school. Um, a lot of other families that, that I knew when we started in public school don't have the resources to do that. And so it, it did negatively impact them. I think what was fascinating to me, though, is that in like Oakland um, High School here in Oakland, that we saw that there were groups of uh, children or teenagers that actually were still doing pretty well. And when we looked into it, we found that it was because they went home to a community that was pretty solid. In other words, the kids had both family and community, a sense of uh, village that was a support yep. system that would offset the educational. It did not necessarily help them get into good colleges and Yale and, and whatever, but it really meant that they were able to graduate from high school and they could do pretty well. But for the, you know, so for both populations, those that have a strong sense of community and those where communities breaking down or, or the family structures breaking down, that uh, one way or another, the education system is really important. But what happens again in the United States is that we tend to disaggregate these problems. And we basically say, well, then these are not good schools. It is a barrier to families. So let's go fix the school. What we don't do is actually be able to give the family the wherewithal to then create the environment that's supportive of their kids. My mother worked two jobs. She wasn't home in the evening. Uh, it created some problems because my sister got in with the wrong kids and we just didn't know there were the neighbors weren't telling us what was going on. So somehow or other, if you're going to invest money into the schools, you need to invest money into the parents so that they actually can develop a stable life and be there for their kids instead of blaming them that it's their fault. So again, this duality of approach is really, really important. We can't just keep doing these silos of let's move money to education or let's move money to employment or let's move money to housing, whatever. In my work, in my family and how growing up, all of those are interactive. And actually by giving families just the money and having them make a choice in terms of how they spend it allows them to deal with their car, their housing, whatever they need at the different point in time. So it's I think the data is now showing get me, getting money directly to families probably works the best, but I would not do it like universal basic income or whatever. I would do it based on the initiative that people take. So there's a tension there, obviously, um, which is that 
you started off by making the point that we want, and it's a really beautiful idea, that we want poverty to be escapable rather than tolerable. Money is what makes it tolerable. Uh, initiative and, and progress is what makes it escapable. The more money you give people, sometimes you destroy their initiative, um, either literally by the way that the program is structured or by the very fact that you're telling them that they can't make it on their own and here's a bunch of money. So going forward, and we'll close on this, what do you see as the, you know, if I'm going to, instead of Jerry Brown, if Donald Trump called you in and said, you know, we've got, we're spending billions of dollars on uh, trying to help poor people and we could start from scratch, uh, what would you do differently? I think one of the biggest um, contributions is obviously money. You know, money, the reason people are called poor is because they don't have as much money as somebody else. The other piece, I think, is social connections. It's like those are where the opportunities lie. And that in many ways, I think I would look at mechanisms that would both open up opportunities and then be able to be able to invest in the initiative. So if if again I had my druthers, I would take, okay, so if we have just been able to come up with a whole set of benefits and tax cuts for corporations in order for them to create more jobs, and that was kind of the basic piece, then since I what I've seen is a lot of these low income communities creating their own jobs, rather than be like the maid at the hotel that got set up because we invested in that that instead it's like Javier who now had been doing my driveway and now is becoming an electrician and starting to set up his own uh, basically uh, business and is able to train people from the neighborhood because that's where he lives. You know, that these are people that are part of our community and are also creating jobs and that if we can portray them uh, for what they really are, which are both customers for the cafes and, and that they do job creation, again, remember the validation is really important that if I had my druthers, then what I would do is both validate the contributions that the folks make. It would make them less scary because they're immigrants or of a different color or whatever, because they are actually are contributing and they're creating jobs for other folks. And then I would set up mechanisms to invest in that, either through uh, tax credits or whatever other mechanisms we've done. Um, certainly we can cut tax rates for a while and uh, provide health care so that they don't have this. These small businesses are not able to afford the health care. So those are the kinds of mechanisms I think actually can be done. And we do it for people in privileged positions. And I would just take and mirror what we do for people in privileged positions because we feel it helps the economy or it helps us all. And then just do the same thing and re recognize that these families that I grew up with are actually contributors into society and just treat them as such. And how would that work? Or a better way to say it is the lessons that you've learned on the ground through the Family Independence Initiative, which are so powerful about social connection and honoring people's uh, the pride they take in what they do, treating them as knowledgeable uh, most government welfare programs struggle to do that. In fact, you wrote, just offering money, as with passing policies or providing services, does not change the sense of control people need over their lives. And it seems to me that the, the fundamental tension we have is that, as you point out, if you want to fight poverty, you need to give people money. Give people money, you're taking away some of the control they have over their life. And how do you maintain some of the lessons you've learned in these small settings at the national level? What you know, how could we possibly change policy in a way that would actually make a difference? I, I think that it's in the words that you were kind of using. If you give people money, um, 
certainly a population that feels kind of patronized already. That does not help. Uh, my mother never wanted free money. If you invest in people's talents, investing is very different. We do that and we use that terminology for people that are privileged and we feel create jobs. That These are investments. Uh, even tax cuts are investments. Uh, it is how you treat people and what the message is that you're saying. So I would certainly stay away from giving people money. That's why I don't, I'm not a big proponent of universal basic income or whatever. But the fact is that these families are productive. And what we need to do is recognize that productivity. And so therefore, like in Liberia, basically there are very few corporations and we try to bring in them. But it is really people creating their own jobs. And these are very low income people creating their own jobs. We can invest in them. And they then will then be able to grow the economies and help us all in that kind of mechanism. But when you so say, that's a distinction I would make. But when you say invest in them, what's the difference between that and just giving them money? Invest. You only invest when you see an idea or a venture and that people have already invested themselves. So an angel investor will go to Stanford and say, okay, what are your ideas? And then how far have you developed it? How much time and or money have you put in? And if I feel confident in the idea, I will, quote, invest in your venture, right? And it's not that Stanford students get up there and say, you know, I have this great idea and, and you know, I'm, I'm from this family and, and we just need your, your charity. It just would not work that way. And so giving is, again, a very patronizing type of approach. Investing based on what people already produce and contribute, especially when you get positive deviance and you get early adopters and you invest in that type of thing, then what's going to happen is you can reach tipping points. And that's how people have self-invested. That's how black townships came about. It's how the Jewish community took control of the garment district in, in New York. It was really self-investment, but also investment from outsiders recognizing that initiative. My guest today has been Mauricio Miller. His book is The Alternative. Mauricio, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much, Russ. I really enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.